welcome to Doing the Work, the frontline stories of social change, where we bring you stories of real people working to address real issues. I am your host, Shimon Cohen. In this episode, I talk with Jonathan Foyles, who is a clinical social worker in Chicago, Illinois. We talk about Jonathan's clinical work with clients who have experienced trauma, cross-cultural practice, whiteness, and self-disclosure. Jonathan shares how he got into this work. We discuss self-care, which for Jonathan includes writing about social policy issues and their impact on clients, using clients' stories and his experience as a way to show the reality of how policy decisions negatively impact people's lives. I hope you enjoy the conversation. I'm here with Jonathan Foyles, LCSW, out of Chicago, and I connected with Jonathan through his article in Belt Magazine entitled, Facing a Mental Health System Gutted by Mayor Emanuel, Chicago Residents Plagued by Gun Violence Are Opting to Fund Their Own Clinics. And I will have the link to this article in the podcast notes, so you can check that out in the notes. Okay, Jonathan, so... Thanks again for coming on, doing the work. I'm really excited to get to know you. You know, thanks for your time. And please share with us just a little about what you currently do. Yeah, most definitely. It's my pleasure to be on this program. So I'm a psychotherapist at a Safety Net Hospital on the west side of Chicago. We're one of, uh, I believe, five now of the level one trauma centers in the city. So we see a lot of the gunshot victims and um, other trauma victims from throughout the city. In the part where I'm at, I'm in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Health. So we're an outpatient clinic on a community mental health model. And so I do mostly individual therapy, some groups. I do like an open men's process group. And then I also run the DBT skills group. And then I'm also our intern program coordinator. That's awesome. And how long have you been there? I've been there since September 2014. So like about three and a half years. What best prepared you for, for your work there? So I kind of came out in a roundabout way. It was actually my second year uh, field placement. And then just sort of throughout the course of my internship there, they asked me to apply for the job and I, I got it. But my first year field placement, I worked with a really large, I think probably the largest mental health provider in the state of Illinois, a group called Thresholds. I mean, they just do a ton of stuff. But what I was doing was providing case management services, basically, to people who were experiencing homelessness and were also um, had a mental health diagnosis. So I think that really, in hindsight, was sort of the ideal, you know, first year field placement, because it kind of got my feet wet. You know, when you're starting out, you don't have a ton of skills, but you have a lot of appetite and energy. And for a lot of the mostly men that I ended up working with, just kind of having someone to sit and talk to was, you know, a, a huge deal. And it just gave me a lot of good skills and a lot of comfort working with people who, from backgrounds that were vastly different than, than my own or than what I was familiar with. And the work you're doing now with a DBT uh, intervention, was that yeah. additional training that you received at this current organization? No, actually, I got that through my graduate program. So I'm a graduate of the University of Chicago's School of Social Service Administration, and they have classes on uh, third wave behaviorism, ACT, or you know, acceptance and commitment therapy, and then DBT. So I actually took all three of those during my time in SSA, and that's kind of the, the basis of the where my skills started for the DBT group. That's awesome. That's really great that you got those that coursework offered yeah. to you there. Yeah. That's I don't think that's 
particularly common. Yeah, I, I get the feeling it's not either. You know, I think the thing I really appreciate about SSA and the thing it's, I've been very thankful for, you know, in my role as the intern program coordinator is the interns from a lot of different schools in the Chicago area. And, you know, the interns are great, you know, but just kind of getting to see the programs through them, I think um, at SSA, there's a real focus on teaching you clinical interventions. You know, I took three classes on psychodynamic stuff, which that's also kind of unheard of in most social work programs. So it really helped me get my feet wet in a lot of really key ways, I think, and prepare me well for the work. Shifting a little bit now to, you know, the client population, mm-hmm. which, you know, really intrigued me from your from the article. Mm-hmm. There was a couple of things that intrigued me and we'll kind of get into them, particularly the link between the clinical work and the policy work, which, mm-hmm. you know, doesn't always get highlighted in our yeah. field, unfortunately, and it needs to mm-hmm. more. But as far as this population, which I know isn't one population, mm-hmm. so you can kind of answer this however you want, but what are what are some of the unique challenges, you know, facing the clients you're you're working with? You know, I think certainly trauma, you know, doesn't uh, I would say, you know, but part of the intake assessment that we conduct with new clients, we do like a trauma assessment. And it's really rare to have a client come through who you don't have to check several boxes. So, you know, pretty pervasive trauma, you know, for a lot of reasons. I mean, Chicago's gun violence problem gets a lot of headlines, but really that's just symptomatic of a lot of stuff that you have going on in, in these neighborhoods and in the city. You know, you have really an absence of good paying jobs, you know, a lack of real community resources. Like I tried to mention in, in my piece too, you know, it's not only that uh, Rahm Emanuel's closed these six community mental health centers a couple of years ago, but he's also closed 50 schools. And there's just sort of a lack in a lot of communities of sort of just community, like third places, you know, places where people can, can gather um, and just be, you know, and, and talk and dialogue with one, one another. So that's certainly a, a big issue, you know, poverty uh, and just kind of everything that comes with that. You know, I've noticed recently, especially in my clients that are seeking social security disability benefits, there's just been, at least here in Illinois, a tremendous backlog and they seem to be getting more strict in who they accept. So, you know, a lot of clients are trying to make do with, with very little or with nothing. You know, we, we see a, a large Latino population at my clinic, you know, and I know too, my, you know, I would say we're pretty evenly split between like Latino and African-American, you know, and I know people are concerned about Trump and the administration. Uh, I will say that I was prepared for it to be like a really big part of my work after the election. And I think that for, and it, you know, it comes up quite often, but probably not as much as I anticipated. I think just because for the people that I see kind of so many of their daily needs aren't being met, that sort of those big political issues they're aware of, they're upset about, but, you know, they have kind of bigger fish to fry. We know that there's a stigma around mental health treatment, right? And going in seeking mental health treatment, and you're serving populations that have traditionally been underserved and for, you know, all sorts of different reasons mm-hmm. when they have been served, it always hasn't always been deli- services haven't been delivered in the best way. Mm-hmm. And especially given that so many services have been cut and there's this issue with the schools, mm-hmm. what's bringing people in, you know, what is, mm-hmm. what is the driving force to have that the clients are coming in to see you and your colleagues? We get all of referrals being associated with the medical clinic too. I think maybe to some degree that helps lessen the stigma somewhat, you know, because we have primary care doctors, which are affiliated with our clinic or whom we have uh, referral relationships. So they'll, you know, see something that concerns a client. Typically it's like one of two things, either they're seeing some early signs of a mental illness or like a client is kind of finally opening up about the depression they've experienced for years, or 
the the patient has seen providers at another place and for um, insurance reasons or for the fact that they've left, you know, there's a real shortage of psychiatrists now, um, you know, they can't continue seeing a provider wherever they were. And so they need to begin services at our clinic. What, what's been the biggest challenge of the work you're doing in terms of real social change, you know, mm-hmm. not well, just that. Yeah. I mean, cause that's always the challenge, right? At least I find that challenging is I can help these individuals and these families to the best of my ability. And I talk about this a lot with students, but then it seems like these issues just continue to be perpetuated. Yeah, almost definitely. No, I run into that a lot too. And I, you know, it's something I try to talk about with my interns, not because they have the answers, but because it's some, something important to think about. You know, so much of our interventions, I think, are sort of targeted at kind of just a middle class you know, almost suburban type population. You know, I mean, my first impulse is, or one of my first impulses, if somebody, you know, is feeling depressed is to get them outside more, interact. I still think that's important, you know, but if, if there's gunfire in your community at all times, like that's just not going to be a safe option. Um, And it would in fact be sort of counter therapeutic for me to recommend that, you know, so I think, yeah, you definitely come up against a systemic issue. And I think it's, and it's difficult too, because I can think of, you know, I have a number of like older male clients sort of from the area who their fathers worked in sort of manufacturing. There were a couple big manufacturing plants and um, we're kind of close to the North Lawndale area. And there were some there um, that closed in I think the seventies or eighties. So their, their dads are working at these pl- or uncles or whatever, working at these places and making like, you know, 15 bucks an hour, you know, in the seventies. And they're like, well, why would I go to McDonald's and, you know, work for $9 an hour? Um, and it's kind of like, yeah, I mean, you have a really good point there. You know, I mean, you know, you can say, well, nine is better than nothing and stuff. And that's true. But, you know, I mean, I think they, people see to me, I think are keenly aware of the disparities that that exist in a way that um, may be surprising. Yeah. And how are you, I mean, I know you're writing. So is is that kind of your way of bringing these issues to a larger audience and, and, and advocating, you know, for change at a larger, at a, at a higher level? Yeah. I mean, I think the writing piece is kind of um, my main way of doing advocacy work right now. You know, and that really started from a place of kind of this sort of frustration I'm talking about. You know, the first piece that I got published was over last summer in Slate magazine. And that was one of the upteenth times that they were talking about repealing the ACA. And I was just seeing a lot of talk about this happen. I could tell my clients were frustrated, concerned, you know, and, you know, I could, you know, try to problem solve with them a little bit in the moment, but it's, yeah, at the end of the day, I mean, this, that could have been something that happened. Um, and it felt like I want to do something larger than just sort of the, you know, well, why don't you try practicing mindfulness to soothe yourself and such. So I wrote the first piece for Slate, just about like, you know, people have serious behavioral health care needs. And I talked about one patient of mine who actually was a, a patient before one of the mental health clinics that closed, you know, but she, you know, had a history of many hospitalizations. Um, and when she started seeing me for a little bit, she became quite stable, you know, still some hospitalizations, but not nearly as frequent. And I, I mean, I think, I, I do think it's because I helped her, but I mean, I also think it's a large part is just sort of having that attention paid to her, those weekly visits just helped give her a place to sort of vent and to kind of find some healing and, and relief. And I did a little bit of case management work with her too. She's transgender. And so I helped her find a place to get hormones at a, a free or very low cost rate and stuff like that. But I was just worried about her, frankly. And so I wrote the first piece um, and that's kind of how the writing started. It sounds like in your role as a therapist that you also have the flexibility to engage in case management yeah. as well, which not all therapist positions 
allow that. For example, mm-hmm. I worked at a community clinic and for case management, that was like a separate department, right? Mm-hmm. Like I yeah. couldn't do case management. So that's an interesting model that you have. And yeah, no, I, I, I will say, you know, I, I really like where I work and, you know, in that they give me quite a bit of flexibility. Um, you know, we have a case manager, she's wonderful, but like all of us, she's busy. Um, and if right. it's something, you know, and if it's something like, yeah, finding hormone treatment or, you know, some other things that I kind of know, you know, just because of being at school for social work, I kind of know the LGBTQ uh, charities in the area. And so I was able to hook her up with one pretty easily. Um, it was, and if it's something like that, I know, then I just really try to, yeah, try to jump in and do it. And, and with the blessing of like my supervisor and such. So it is something I try not to take for granted because I know that every place has that, yeah, has that flexibility. What's the biggest challenge of this work for you? You know, I think maintaining hope. Um, you know, I mean, I'm generally like a, a fairly hopeful person, you know, but I think it, you know, I try, particularly given the current political climate, to be, uh, you know, to practice my self-care. You know, I mean, I think one of the reasons why I wrote the latest piece that I did about sort of how some things, you know, both how Rahm Emanuel did some horrible things to the public mental health system in Chicago, but also how some clinicians and community members were, were addressing it, fixing it. Um, that kind of came from a deliberate deliberate place with me. You know, I wrote the first few pieces I wrote were kind of responding to Trump and Trump things. And that's important. There's still a lot of need for that. But I wanted to not just, you know, so many terrible things seem to happen every day. Um, I want to do more than just sort of be on the de- defense. You know, I wanted to kind of be like, well, you know, that's terrible, but here are some ways that, you know, perhaps we could do, do things in a better way and to kind of offer an alternative vision. So I think that helps, helps. But yeah, certainly sort of just facing these massive structural issues, you know, it's, it's definitely can be quite difficult at times. What I kind of took away from it was, you know, homicides have increased, services have decreased at the exact same mm-hmm. time. And, you know, people came together to you know, try to address this issue. But I also was thinking the waiting lists have must have increased as well for services. You know, I don't know. So what is what's that like? I mean, how long is it taking for people to get seen? You know, it's, it's hard to say sometimes I know, like, or, you know, I think part of the issue with waiting lists to at least how I see it in our clinic. And I think this is the same and just kind of in the field at large is, you know, not only is the demand high, but also the supply of therapists can fluctuate quite a bit. You know, in December, we had two therapists leave, you know, to move on to other opportunities. Um, And so, you know, just that, I mean, two people doesn't sound like that many, but that can put a real strain on the wait list because, you know, that's somebody who, I mean, I think most of us operate with caseloads of like probably 50 or 60 people, you know, so there are people who need to get seen. Realistically, most of you know, we're not going to send those people back to the wait list. So they'll get assigned to other therapists and then, you know, clients who would have gotten assigned instead get put on the wait list. So it really fluctuates. Um, we have six interns now that really helps pick up the load, you know, and they're there. Um, we have their year runs like August to May. So we have them for quite a while and they're great. But yeah, I mean, I think wait lists just seem to be a feature of this work really. Um, you know, we, I participated in a project kind of using uh, Six Sigma principles a little over a year ago, looking at ways to sort of better do our wait list because um, it was just massively unwieldy and it just wasn't really getting proper attention paid to it. Um, so I think it's better than it was, but um, in the ways it's being utilized at least, but yeah, I mean, it can still just really swell kind of seemingly out of nowhere. You talked a little bit about self-care and I was going to ask you this a little bit later on, but since you brought mm-hmm. it up, I just thought, you know, so you mentioned, you know, writing as 
a means of self-care while also advocating at the same time, which I think is a pretty cool uh, way to mm-hmm. practice self-care. What other what other things do you do, you know, to prevent burnout, really, right? Because mm-hmm. in the end, self-care is we're preventing is to prevent burnout, but also to stay energetic and optimistic and, you know, carry through the all these challenges that that are faced out there in the field and the front mm-hmm. lines. Yeah, you know, I mean I think probably the biggest part to have a six month old well, she'll be six months old six months old in a week, um, a daughter. And that's a good, you know, not suggesting everybody go and have kids as a means of self care. Um, but I mean <laughs> having her around is great. I'm um, and my wife and then we have a, a miniature dachshund as well. So all of those are kind of, you know, family is good. You know, I think Art is really important to me. You know, uh, once upon a time when I was an undergraduate, um, I made did a double major like English and philosophy. So sort of, even though I'm kind of in this uh, therapy space right now, and that's, I mean, I love it. Um, you know, kind of that liberal arts core. And it, I mean, I think this comes out in the writing too, is really important to me. So I just try to always be reading a fiction book. You know, my wife and I are members at the Chicago Art Institute. It's wonderful art museum. You know, and then I would say faith is important to me too. And, you know, sort of in the... Um, comforting aspects and also just kind of in the making sense of some of these larger questions of like injustice and wrongness and stuff like that. Um, and I think kind of having a community that shares some of the same principles and values has been really key, um, especially in, you know, since the election. Does spirituality enter into the work that you do with clients? Yes, to a degree. I mean, I would say most of my clients are religious, you know, and I think I try to, let it enter into my work to the degree to which they feel comfortable, you know, so kind of letting them be in the driver's seat, you know, and I think, you know, I come from an evangelical background. So, and most of my clients are probably more similar to that than not, you know, I'm not really there anymore. Um, We go to an Episcopalian church, so kind of more liberal. And I know that my clients probably wouldn't be um, all too impressed by that, you know, so I think I kind of just, yeah, try to keep things vague and kind of client focused, but it definitely comes up in the work because I think it is a tremendous source of strength for a lot of clients. And it can be a, a negative uh, thing too. So that's why I try to kind of um, use it loosely. And is that part of the assess the the initial assessment too? Is as a dimension of strength for them? Or yeah, I mean t- to a to a degree. I mean it's probably not as um, you know. I took a class on spirituality and social work in under um, it at SSA, and I loved it. Um, we probably aren't quite fully integrated. Like I, I would like, you know, we do ask clients if they have a like a religious or spiritual system. And if they do have one, like, to, you know, how important it is to you, you know, what, what does it mean to you? You know, I try to work on it a little bit more um, sort of individual work with my clients. Um, particularly, you know, I, before I take on clients, I get to read their assessment. So if I see something where I'm like, Oh, that, you know, seems like it might be a source of resilience for them or something that's important to them. Um, then it's worth bringing up. A big reason that I'm doing this podcast that I started this podcast is I'm just, I'm really interested in people's stories and I'm particularly interested in, you know, people on the front lines in the field because it's, you know, sometimes we hear about maybe more prominent people or like, you know, someone who's written a lot of books or is, you know, doing cutting edge research and that mm-hmm. those things are super important too. But I just mm-hmm. wanted something a little different to kind of capture, you know, the people just out there doing this every day, you know? Mm-hmm. And so One of the things about that that I'm interested is just like, how did people get into this work? Because, you know, everyone's got their own story and it's not easy work. It's Mm -hmm. extremely challenging work. And (laughs) yeah. And so I'm just, I'm, 
you know, this is something I'm planning to ask everyone, but just like, how, how did you get into to doing this? Yeah, well, it's kind of a roundabout way for me. So actually, right after I graduated from undergrad, I went to seminary and I was planning to mostly do like academic work in, in theology and like religious studies with possibly like some sort of like local community work alongside that. I enjoyed my experience there. Um, I think kind of I was in a parallel process of kind of trying to figure out where I fit in in the whole faith world, um, which kind of made what do I do after graduation like a little muddy. And I think just as I read more and kind of just worked with people, I got kind of uh, uncomfortable or disillusioned with kind of just like sitting back and writing about issues, you know, and I was the issues I want to write about are not dissimilar to what I do now, like, you know, issues like politics and, you know, community life and such. So that was all kind of brewing in me. And then towards the end of my time in seminary, I did a, um, an internship in North Lawndale um, in Chicago, which is actually pretty, like, about a mile away from where I work now, funnily enough. And part of that was just talking to men who were in recovery from drugs and alcohol, not doing anything, like, deeply therapeutic with them, but just listening. And then part of that was just doing some community work. And I think that the biggest part of that that impacted me is there was uh, one day I was, the night before I was going to field, uh, my supervisor called me told me to wear a suit the next day because we were going to do a funeral. And I had been to funerals as part of this. So it wasn't, you know, this wasn't completely out of left field, but it was a funeral for like a, a gunshot victim, who a black male who wasn't very far away from my age. And just seeing the, just sitting in a room with, you know, a couple hundred people, um, there was just so full of pain um, and just sort of frustration and anger, you know, and in his, and I still remember that the, the deceased, his mother was very calm throughout the funeral to a point where I was like, noticed it. Um, and then when they were doing kind of the final viewing, she just completely fell apart and just sitting in the midst of all that raw pain, you know, I was like, yeah, I don't know, but I feel like I want to do something more with this. And then, you know, I talked to my supervisor afterwards, you know, who's from the community and, and such, and was kind of told him a little bit like, wow, that was tough. You know, he's like, yeah, we have like another one later this week. You know, um, so it just really brought home to me like, oh, you know, like it made me feel my whiteness, you know, um, and my privilege because it's like, yeah, this is really like just rocked my world, you know, but for them, it's like, you know, this is something that unfortunately happened far too often. And then how did, how did that then translate into social work? Mm -hmm. Like what, you know, out of all the different ways that you could end up helping people how did you choose to then pursue an MSW and become mm-hmm. a clinical social worker? You know, I, I like that social workers kind of at the base level work for social justice. Um, you know, that the focus is on people. You know, I kind of just took a step back, you know, I graduated on that and then just did some research. You know, and I had known some social workers. You know, I'd seen a therapist who's a social worker, uh, had friends who were social workers. So I was kind of had been in the orbit of social workers before. So I already had a positive opinion of them. It's like, you know, I think like, I think that's something I want to do. And, you know, I think it really, you know, I thought about it, I read the NASW Code of Ethics, and it was just kind of like, you know, as dry as that can be. Um, I was just like, yeah, I mean, this vision of how things should be really syncs up with what I what I understand and what I like. And just, I think, even though the the idea of getting paid to do this sort of thing, even though, you know, as we know, not getting paid very much at times, was just really appealing to me. And, yeah, I don't think I could have made a better choice. Yeah, that's that's a really powerful story. And, you know, you mentioned, you know, you really felt your whiteness. And I Mm -hmm. think that that just kind of jumps out at me, um, Mm -hmm. you saying that and then continuing the work you're doing. And I'm just wondering, I mean, I would assume, and again, I'm not in your position um, Mm -hmm. out there, you know, doing the work you're doing, but that you would still feel that right, like in the in what you're doing now. So how, 
And how, you know, how to, how, I don't know if you could speak a little bit more on that and also maybe just about how you connect with such a diverse population, you know, the cross-cultural, I mean, almost all the work you're doing must be cross-cultural. Oh yeah. Yeah. Almost entirely. Yeah. You know, I think it starts for me by just trying to acknowledge it. You know, I think, I think the election gave me a, a new sense, a, 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 like a clearer sense of kind of how to do that or just a, maybe perhaps like a better sense of why it's needed. Like I remember my men's process group, this is back, I think during the primaries, we were meeting and there are like three or four African-American men there talking about Trump, you know, and one of them, you know, and I felt like they kind of knew me pretty well. All of them have been in the group for a while. One of them was kind of like, well, you know, of course we don't like him, but I don't know. I mean, you people seem to, well, you know, uh, what, what do you, uh, you know, uh, and that, you know, and, and, and there are a few other things kind of like that where I just realized like, oh, like a lot of my clients, yeah, assume I'm a, a maybe Trump supporters too strong, but assume like I'm a Republican just because, you know, the way I dress and such. And I was like, oh, like this is something I really need to, to talk about. So yeah, I think after the election too, I just, with most of my clients, you know, ones who I, I felt kind of could be impacted by it, I just try to make space for it to come up. Like, you know, this happened, you know, what do you, you know, how do you feel? What do you think about that? And to try just to, you know, I try to be pretty explicit whenever issues like structural inequality come up and stuff like that, you know, it is to, yeah, kind of bring my, bring like a moral voice to the work in a way I didn't anticipate so much when I started out, but just being like, you know, that's wrong. You know, there aren't jobs here and that's because of, you know, structural issues that you didn't have anything to do with, you know, and that's just, it's not right, you know, and just to validate clients and to acknowledge that there's just a lot I don't understand. Like I've found that almost all of my clients are really happy to kind of take that teacher role when it comes to cultural stuff that I may not be aware of, or, you know, I may have kind of an idea based on like, you know, the internet and stuff like that. But I'm like, well, you know, that's not how real people live. So, you know, tell me more about this. And I found most of them, if you kind of come from that place of, yeah, just wanting to learn and acknowledging that you don't know are pretty good to kind of fill in the gaps there. I think that's all really important information. And one thing you said, a few things you said really jumped out at me, but I made a note here because, you know, social workers are often trained regarding self-disclosure to, you know, never share anything (laughs) unless it's going to be beneficial to the client. And even with that, there's tons of controversy. um, And, you know, there's such a gamut on what's allowed and, or not allowed, but even what's taught like in schools of social work around self-disclosure. And you just shared that basically you're self-disclosing, you know, your political views with (laughs) clients and it's in a way to, so they know where you're coming from. Right. So they'll actually feel like, okay, working with you um, possibly, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think for me, it's just like Trump and Trumpism makes so many people feel unsafe that I think, you know, creating like a safe space for therapy to take place, I think involves kind of explicitly renouncing that. Um, you know, I thought to myself too, you know, I mean, I, I lived through W, he was president when I was um, in high school and college, you know, I'm like, would I do the same thing if, if it was that era? And, you know, I, as much as I disliked him, I think it feels like things are much, uh, you know, much more, much worse now, you know, like as bad as Bush was, you know, that there's kind of this need to be, to be on the side of those who are being oppressed by the current. And obviously it's totally dependent on where you're working, oh, yeah. you're working with, right. Cause you could work with another population where you can't say those things because you, then they'll be alienated for oh, other yeah. reasons. Yeah. You know, maybe they're supporters I, yeah. even. So 
Yeah, um, no, I mean, it's definitely context dependent. You know, I've I've talked a lot with one of my interns. She's from Texas and wants to practice in Texas. Um, and just kind of like, yeah, you know, like what, what we do here, um, you know, what works here is, is not going to work there. You know, and I, yeah. Yeah, I think, I mean, I, I just think it's great that they just straight up said, you know, what are you... <laughs> Oh, I know your people, you know, seem to like him and, you know, yeah. where kind of, where are you at? You know, we're, we're putting you on the spot here. No, it, yeah. As uncomfortable as it made me, I really appreciated it. So I'm like, oh, okay. Like this is, you know, they're, they're not, uh, you know, treating me with kid gloves or anything, you know, just, yeah, it was pretty great in hindsight. You know, we've covered so many different areas here and I mean, I'm even thinking like in the future, it'd be great to have you back on to even just yeah. talk more in depth about some of the actual interventions, you know, mm -hmm. you're doing with clients just before we kind of wrap up, you know, is there anything you just want to kind of add and just feel like we didn't cover that you really want to get out there? No, you know, I, mean, I think, no, I think it's, we've covered a lot of important stuff. I mean, I think, you know, the one thing that I think it comes down to, to me, for me, particularly like working with interns and just thinking about my own time in, in grad schools, there's, I feel like there's often a push to kind of determine what your modality is, um, you know, or what kind of, how you're going to help people. And to really, at least from the students I see to kind of stress out about it, you know, to want to really do best practices. But I think the the best thing you can do is to do what helps people. And I really think the most curative thing or how it starts in, in our clinic, and I think a lot of similar settings, just by showing up. I really appreciate your time. We kind of that went pretty quickly. Yeah. Um, and, and um, you know, I look forward to continuing a dialogue with you. And again, thank you so much. So this was Jonathan Foyles, LCSW out of Chicago. And again, look, please look for the notes to um, his Belt Magazine article. And, you know, you can follow him as well. He's on Twitter. And, you know, follow, follow this connection between clinical social work and political um, advocacy. Thanks again, Jonathan. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to Doing the Work, Frontline Stories of Social Change. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Please follow on Twitter and leave positive reviews on iTunes. If you're interested in being a guest or know someone who's doing great work, please get in touch. And thank you for doing real work to make this world a better place. Mm -hmm.